Uh, Holy Spirit, we're just thankful for this opportunity to share and get together and enjoy your presence. And um, just thank you that you're here and that your blessing is on our words and that you would multiply them in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, we're Brett and Allison. I think you know us, most of you. Um, so we're privileged to have the opportunity to speak with you this morning. So um, thanks for uh, joining us. And um, we have kind of kind of an interesting story, maybe not always the same as everybody else, but I think everybody's story is a little bit different, right? So um, I guess we'll, uh, how did it all start, babe? Yeah, how did it all start? Well, so to go way back, Brett and I have grown up in the church since we were young. We were raised um, attending church, and we met at church. We were friends in youth group. We got married. We had kids. We were, you know, church people. And so um, we, our grace journey kind of is interesting because it started because of our kids. Mm-hmm. We were, had a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and that is a challenging place to be. We were having some issues. And what do you do as Christian parents when you have little kids and you're having trouble? You go to parenting class, right? So we enrolled in this 18-week parenting course that was going to help us, you know. And the course focused on first-time obedience. If it's not first-time obedience, it's not obedience at all. And you need to teach your kids to just comply, right? And then if they don't comply, there's here's the list of punishments, and this is how we're going to do this because we're Christians, and this is how we raise our kids, right? And in that class, we were like, yeah, that all sounds about right. Sounds like, you know, probably a little bit about how we were raised. It sounds, yeah, first time, yes. I go home, I'm going to teach my four-year-old and my two-year-old first-time obedience. This is going to change everything, right? And guess what? It did not. It actually made things worse. It was like I tried to get them to comply, and they just, it was worse, you know? So we actually ended up teaching that course, you know, like taking it over for the people that led it before us, and I was like, you know, I just, I feel like I need to look for something else. This isn't really working, you know. Uh, So I went and looked and found a different curriculum, and I was listening to it, and it was, I didn't know it was grace-based, right? It was just totally different than the class that we had taken, because the perspective of this class was who the Father is and how he fathers us, what kind of father he is to us. And so it wasn't about compliance and obedience. It was about relationship and love. And it felt really different, and it felt really good. So we thought, this is good. We like this, you know. And we started to implement some of the things with our kids, and it was great. Like, they responded. It was good. And in the midst of that class, they said some things that, we didn't understand at the time. It was like little seeds that we kept hearing because we taught the class for many years and it was like over and over again we'd hear these same things. And the teacher would say things like, God is not afraid of your sin. And I'm like, hmm, I don't know about that. I feel like he's real concerned with my sin. Like that's pretty much all he's concerned about all the time (laughs) is my sin. And I, in turn, am real concerned about my kid's sin too. You know, like, no, no, I don't understand. Okay, he's not afraid of our sin. Okay. You know, and those, there's no fear in love, which I'll talk about a little bit more later, but there's no fear in love 
huh, okay, you know? And it was those seeds, I think, that started our journey because to me, it was a dichotomy between what we believed about who God was, what he looked like, how he related to us, and who he really was. Because in my mind at that point, he was a bit of a punisher. He did have very high expectations, you know, that I was always trying to meet. And the idea that he was different than that, that that maybe wasn't who he really was, um, was, a, was an eye-opener. And it took, for me, that was the seeds. That was where it started, where I started to think differently about who he was and how I saw him. And it started to change some things inside of me. Like, just like with my kids, I started to respond to that in a way that I wasn't expecting. It was different than, um, than the past, so. And around this same period of time uh, that you know, we were teaching parenting and doing that sort of thing um, and raising our kids, I was uh, slowly reaching kind of a crisis of faith Point, I guess you could say, but I put I put that in quotes, especially the word faith. I put crisis in faith, kind of in quotes, because there's a lot of talk about that kind of thing in Christianity today. But I, when I say the phrase, I'm not saying the same thing they are. So I'll get to that in just a minute, so you understand what I mean by that. But the problem I was having was that I was encountering the impossibility of sin of achieving sinlessness and holiness in my life. You know, I'm probably not the only one. Uh, that's encountered that problem, but I was increasingly realizing the impossibility of that endeavor, the attempt to do it. And some people would say that I was being too hard on myself when I would talk about it, you know, and, oh, you know, Brett, you're just, you know, be, you need, need to relax and not be so hard on yourself. But what's the, what's the recurring theme that we've heard all our lives in church? Like Allison said, we've been in church since six, I, I since six years old, you know, and, and all the churches I've been a part of and been in leadership as a part of and that kind of thing there's this recurring theme that you're constantly preaching and teaching and espousing, which is, you know, you need to constantly endeavor to be more sinless, to be more holy. Um, and that was my idea of righteousness. That was my idea of holiness, was whatever I could muster, right? Mm -hmm. It comes from me. And so that became an impossible hamster wheel. I realized the waste of it. I realized I wasn't going anywhere. I was working harder, trying harder, failing miserably, falling off the wheel, trying to get back on. Spin you ever watch a hamster and how fast that you can't even see their legs? We used to laugh at that as kids, just how funny that is. You can't even see their legs. They're moving so fast. But the faster you go, the more tired you get, and you eventually fall off again. Your efforts eventually fail. And if I believed that God was, so to speak, stepping away from me, every time I failed in some way. Um, and if God was stepping away from me, if there was some kind of distance between me and God, you know, people will say in theology, they'll say, well, it's, you know, positionally, you're still with God, you're still child of God, that kind of thing. But relationally, you know, relationship is damaged. Well, is that not worse? Like, if, if, if God is, is stepping away from me, won't hear me, won't talk to me, I mean, you, you get the picture, right? Every time unless I have remembered to and constantly come back and admitted and apologized mm -hmm. and demonstrated some level of sorrow and you know, uh, asked for more forgiveness and recommitted to never doing those things again, 
that's our kind of definition of repentance when you get under the hood, right? That's, that's how it has been. Uh, you know, then God's not listening to you, and you know, you're under a curse somehow. Depending on which preacher you're listening to, you're, you're not blessed, you're not, you're not in relationship, you know, and that's devastating to a person after a while. And sometimes I think it's not conscious. You know, we don't even realize that that's the reality we believe. And so that says that when I realized that's what was happening, I realized that's what I was thinking about God. Yeah. I, I started to realize that my picture of God was one who was punitive, one who, who was, you know, unwilling to stand with me or, or be a part of my life or be close to me if I couldn't be perfect. You know, and again, there's that standard, right? But is that not the standard we're preaching in churches around the country, right? Is that not the standard we've been all told to believe? Um, so this is what led to a crisis of faith. And here's what I mean by faith. I realized that what I believed about God wasn't faith. But if you'd asked me if I'd had faith in God, I would have said yes. But if I explained to you what I believed about God, and I was honest with myself, which I eventually became, I realized what I believed wasn't faith in God. If I say to you, I have faith in someone, I have faith in Matt, you know, you instantly know what I'm saying. You instantly know there's not a single negative connotation in that statement, right? Am I saying he's disloyal? Am I saying he's, you know, unable to be consistent? He's inconsistent somehow? Is, am, I, am I saying he's, you know, uh, anything negative at all? Is there ever anything negative we say when we say we have faith in a person, faith in someone? What I realized is I was being taught to have faith for things, have faith for healing or prosperity, whatever the teaching of the day was. But I didn't have faith in God. I didn't believe in his goodness towards me. I didn't believe in his loyalty towards me, his, you know what I'm saying? Like his consistency in how he treats me. So this was really important because um, I started to discover in Matthew 7 where it says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who's in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And I realized God's the one who's good, always good, unquestionably good. If there's ever anything bad happening in my life, the last person I should blame is God. The last person I should ever accuse or think of is at fault is God, you know? Um, that, that was a pretty big discovery in my life. Um, and then the biggest of all was the realization of what faith really was. I started to touch on it just now. But in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all who without reproach. And it goes on to talk about that you have to have this without doubt. You believe, you have to ask without doubt, right? Because he who doubts is like the tossed by the waves. And I realized I'd been tossed by the waves all my life. In my faith life, I had been tossed and uncertain and, un you know, uh, tossed to and fro because of what I believed about God. It wasn't actually faith. Um, and so he actually is give a giver. And he does give to all. And he gives to all generously. And he isn't giving reproach. I always thought he was angry with me. If he wasn't angry with me, he was frustrated with me. If he wasn't frustrated with me, he was just waiting to give me a piece of my mind or let me experience some consequences so I would know what's up, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that's not faith in God, right? But that's what we believe about God. And then we say we have faith in God, and that was toxic in my life, so. Yeah, yeah and for me, it affected my prayer life, what prayer life there was, because I felt like every time I came to him, I had to go through all this. I'm sorry. I know the last since the last time I prayed, I did all these things or whatever. 
and I need to say I'm sorry, and I need to get back to relationship, right? And I feel like that God's just waiting for me to come to Him, and I'm like, okay, here's all the things I did, and you know, all the thing, and 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 I couldn't come to Him freely because I felt like He was holding these things against me, and I had to clear it up, you know, before I could come to Him for anything. And when we were going through this journey of kind of realizing who he was, I read the parable of the talents, and it, something struck me as really interesting about it. So, you know, the story in Matthew 25, the businessman is going away, and he leaves his servants with money. And he gives one 5,000, and he gives one 3,000, and he gives one 1,000. And it's, in, oh, I'm going to come back to that. But anyway, at the end, he comes back, and the very last servant, it says, then one who had been trusted with 1,000 gold coins came to his master and said, look, sir, I know you're a hard man to please and you're shrewd and ruthless businessman who grows rich on the backs of others. I was afraid of you. So I went and hid your money and buried it in the ground. But here it is, take it, it's yours. And I thought that was interesting that he, the way he perceived that man was that he was harsh, and he was ruthless, and he was afraid of him, you know? And so what did he do? He didn't want anything to do with him because he was who he, who he thought the man was, right? He didn't want anything to do with it. He was afraid. And I feel like that is how I felt about God. I felt like I don't want to do anything to mess this up because I know, like, you're a hard man, and I am not going to do well with this, so I'm just going to like not do anything, right? Or I'm going to hide it, or I'm going to be afraid. And it's interesting, because if you read the beginning of that, when the man is giving the talents, he's actually giving it according to what they could handle. He was actually being very kind. He was giving the man that he knew could handle a lot, a lot. And the one that he wasn't sure, you know, okay, I think this is going to be hard for you. I'm not going to give you a lot. I'm going to give you a little bit. And he was actually being kind to them when he was giving out the things to do. And so I just thought it was interesting because that's kind of how I saw, it's how we see him is what's so important. I think that's what we, we're trying to show, like we saw him this way and we started to see him in a totally different way. And that's what started to change us. It's like the sin issue and all those things we were striving so hard and failing at, all of a sudden it was like we had this freedom from those things, and we could see him for who he really was. So what did that picture of God cause you to do in prayer when you did pray? Right. It was always like a fear or a hiding or a coming to him feeling unworthy, like, hey, I know I failed you, but here's your stuff back. You know, like, I don't, I don't know, you know. Yeah. It wasn't a closeness. It wasn't like I felt like we could have that close relationship. I knew he loved me, but I didn't know... I felt like he was hard. He was a hard man to please, you know. So similar to where Allison was, you know, saying that she was always coming to God, asking for forgiveness, trying to, you know, make up for what had, you know, what had transpired maybe since the last time she'd prayed or that kind of thing, always coming from behind. For me, this belief in God, the way that I thought about God, drove me more to prayerlessness. Because eventually, for me, the enemy just wins that argument. You know, eventually, it's like the thousandth time you're praying and you're, you're starting off with the groveling and the, and the for, you know, please forgive me and whatever, I'm sorry, I didn't, 
live up to whatever, whatever. I mean, it may not have been like some big dark sin that week, but it might have been something, you know, uh, you know, you just didn't, you didn't pray yesterday, you didn't read your Bible, all the things, right? All the, the things that you're guilted about in, in various subtle ways in the Christian life, you know? And so the realization that I wasn't living up, whether it was avoiding sin or, or demonstrating a sufficient level of devotion, you know, always coming from behind. All, eventually, the enemy wins that argument. You know, eventually, it's like, uh, yeah, I got, I'm not going to pray this morning. That's stupid, you know, because what do you, what, you know, you're just always confronted with your sin. Yeah. You know, always, always your weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, you have nothing to combat that temptation with if you have that picture of God. That's what I found right. is that I was defenseless against that temptation to, to just avoid sin, avoid studying, avoid asking God for help was just because I basically had no faith in God that he was going to help me in that regard. It was on me to, to, to demonstrate my commitment to God, my devotion to God, to show up at that time and prove that I was a faithful servant of God, you know. And uh, in, in 1 John chapter 1, it says, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And this started to like open my eyes like, no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You know, you've got so many people out there who are quick to cast darkness on God. Not, you know, they, they, they say it in kind of a sanctified way or however you want to say it, a religious way, but it's like, you know, yeah, he's good. Yes, he's loving, but. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he's merciful, but. And there's always like a dark side. You know, there's, yeah. all, there's always something waiting around the corner that if you don't get your, the implication is, is if you don't get your act together, the hammer's coming and it's God's hammer, you know? And so all those scriptures that talk about the wickedness of people and God's judgment against them and that kind of thing are all wielded against you as a believer, as a child of God, mm-hmm. right? So on the one hand, I'm trying to love God. And on the other hand, I'm trying to like avoid him hurting me, you know? Mm-hmm. We, we have certain labels for people in the public sector, in, in the real world we live in with people, that we call people who do that to other people. Yeah. I love you, but I'm going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, and we that put, was the parenting we, class. We put, it was like, I love you, but I'm going to have to yeah. bring down the hammer. You know? we, we put people in special places so they're away from other people <laughs> when they do that to others. Yeah. Okay? But somehow, we've allowed ourselves to believe those things about God that he's that way. And wow, I mean, the more I realized this is how I pictured God, you know, the more I realized I didn't have faith in him. And so in uh, what really helped me understand faith, uh, as I said before, was in James chapter one. And um, another picture of that is in verse 16, where it says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the father of lights, with whom there is no variation. Ooh, lights. With whom there, that was good timing, Matt. For those who can't see in the room, they're just listening to us. Matt just turned the lights on right as I read that scripture about the father of lights. That was awesome. Uh, With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good and perfect gift Mm -hmm. comes from the father. Mm -hmm. It didn't come from you or me. It came from the father. If it came through you or me, it still came from the Father. Mm-hmm. Every good gift, every perfect gift mm-hmm. is from Him. 
So it did, it's not because, the reason that's important is because we tend to don't realize that we believe, I didn't realize I believed that I was capable of giving a good gift that didn't come from God. Right. I was capable of doing something good that didn't come from God, which allows me to think I'm good and allows me to think of God's goodness as kind of down here somewhere instead of way up in the stratosphere where it is, unachievable. You see? If I start to think I'm capable of good on my own, then I no, long, I no longer think of God's goodness as what it is. I bring it down and I raise myself up. You see? Everything good comes from Him. He's the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. This I really struggled with for, for my whole Christian walk because I didn't understand what it meant. But I asked God to help me with it. And what I, what I came to was, First of all, there's no variation. That's pretty straightforward where basically throughout himself, right? Through and through, he's good. Yes. Through and through, he's good. There's no darkness in him at all, right? No shadow of turning or no shadow due to change. If it, different, depending on the version you read, the shadow due to turning. If you could imagine God kind of like, if you could imagine like a giant statue or some kind of building or edifice or something, and as the sun moves, you know, the shadow is cast, right? And as the sun, or if you, could, if you could turn that object, right, you could eventually find the shadow being cast, right? Aha, there's the darkness, there's the shadow, there's the, the bad news that contrasts with the good news. It's balanced, Brett, right? So he's saying he's the father of lights. Light emanates from inside him. Does a, does a, is there ever a shadow cast by a light bulb that's turned on? Does, does another light cast a shadow against a light bulb that's turned on? It doesn't, right? Unless that light exceeds the light from the, from the light bulb, right? God's light is the brightest. He doesn't cast a shadow. There is no darkness to be found, no matter what perspective you want to take. It's all about context, right? No matter what context you put around it, there is no darkness in God and he doesn't cast a shadow. These were really important mm -hmm. foundational things for, for me to, to learn because... I needed to understand that I didn't have to doubt God and that yeah. no matter what I didn't understand in Scripture about a particular scary verse, I could still trust Him. I could trust that He was good. I could trust that He's my Father. I could trust that He loves me, that He's not separating Himself from me. You see? I had to, like, believe in who He is because the minute the enemy wins that argument about who He is and how He wants to be towards me, the minute that I've given up my faith in God. And my faith in God is everything, right? But now faith in God is something new to me. It's something different than faith for things or trying to prove that I have enough of it, right? It's simply trusting, simply relying on who he is. And, well, this just became crucial in our, our journey. Mm -hmm. So something that we learned and that has been so big to us is that scripture that there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all the fear. There's not a little fear left. It's all just, it's his love casts out fear. It gets rid of it completely. And that was so powerful for us. And that's in 1 John 4, 18. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. And I think that's what's so great about grace now is that instead of focusing on me, you know, I'm focused on him, yeah. you know, and how much he loves me and how good he is 
And that is so good. That is such good news, you know? Um, one of the things that I think was also really a turning point for me is it, it just shows the contrast of thinking, you know, from where we were to where we are, and we're still, you know, <laughs> still getting there. But, um, you know, in church, I would always, that scripture, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, right? That was like a cry of my heart, like, Lord, help me. I want to love you with all my heart, all my mind. And that's good. That's not a bad thing. But I felt like that was the standard. Like, I needed to love him that way. And I would fall short of that, you know? And that's part of why when I came to him, I'd be like, I'm sorry, <laughs> you know? Like, ha, huh, I'm not loving you like that. You know, I'm not loving you with all my heart. You know, and that was constantly like this thing that I felt like I needed to do. But after we kind of started this journey of grace, we realized that that was for Jesus to do. He was the one who loved God with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul, all his strength, so that we could come to him and be made whole. And I can't expect to do what Jesus did. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the expectation that God has for me. It was for him to do for me. And now when I see that scripture, it's such a reminder of what I've been set free from. Mm. You know, I may not have, you know, done all of the things, you know, that other people may have been set free from. But for me, I was set free from that fear, that um, hopelessness, mm. that I thought God, how he was. And knowing that it's all about his love and what he did for me has just completely changed everything about who, who I am, you know, who he is, and um, it's just really powerful. That may sound sacrilegious at the outset to somebody yeah. who's never heard that before, and it certainly sounded that way the first time we heard it, that yeah. you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and that's what we've been set free from right? Because in Christian churches, even many grace churches, we still preach that as the apex commandment. I mean, Jesus said, didn't he? This is the first command, most important commandment. Didn't he say that? Yeah. So we still preach that as the goal, if you will. But we're not supposed to be preaching goals as far as like uh, achievement, you know? We're not supposed to, in, in terms of us mustering, right? It's the work of the Spirit in us that accomplishes things. It's not us trying to do things. So if we are loving in that way, it's because He's loving in that way. It's not because we've managed to muster that right. love and devotion for God. Um, so remember there were two commandments in that conversation, right? And the first one, but it, it, was, it was a Sadducee, or it was a member of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It was a lawyer who was, they had just all been silenced by Jesus. Um, and, and you can read the story in Matthew and also in Luke, I think. Um, and they ask, the lawyer says to him, challenging him, testing him, saying, what, what are the, what's the most, commandment, uh, most important commandment uh, in the law? And he says that first commandment, right? But then he says in, in chapter 22, verse 39, this is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The whole law of Moses and all of the prophets are summarized and encapsulated and based upon 
these two commandments? Well, some of us have been taught by now, right, that the law of Moses we've been rescued from, right? Wasn't that the impossible standard that we were being held against? So we've been rescued, saved from the obligations under that law. And if these two commandments encapsulate all of that, haven't we been set free from them? I had never heard that in my whole life. You know how I came across that? It, again, I was having this crisis period in my life, and I was calling out to God, to be honest, and I was saying, help me understand these scriptures that are standing against me, because I've been taught them my whole life, and I can't live up to them, and I, I, I have to walk away from them unless you help me understand this. And I went to, uh, it was in John 13, where it says, Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, was talking to his disciples at the Last Supper, and he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and also are to love one another. A new commandment I give you. Well, love one another sounds a lot like love your neighbor. Love one another as I've loved you sounds similar mm -hmm. to love your neighbor as yourself. Similar. I was like, I don't understand the difference. They sound like you, you kind of gave me one kind of apple and gave me a different kind of apple to eat. Like, I, I, what's, what's, I don't understand the difference. But love one another is a different perspective than love your neighbor. What was the question the Pharisees asked of Jesus when he said that scripture to them, that commandment to them? Who is my neighbor? That's right. They wanted to know who they were obligated to love under that commandment. But the commandment that Jesus gives is love one another as I have loved you. It's the experience of God's love through Jesus for us that is life to us, that sets us free from everything, that transforms us, empowers us. You know, he's the vine, we're the branches. Experiencing his love. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people where I've, I've, I've tried to explain this and I've said, I, I didn't experience God's love. And I wonder sometimes how many of us I mean, us, the people I was talking amongst, how many of us are experiencing his love? And the answer coming back to me would always be, you mean to say they don't, you don't think they love Jesus? No, no. I was talking about them experiencing his love for them, not were they trying to be, you know, show good love for Jesus. How many of us are really experiencing his love when we're just going about the day? You know, how many of us are being weighed down by the obligation, the seeming obligation to live up to what God is supposedly expecting of us, right? But Jesus came to reveal that the Father has set us free from all of that. And this was starting to set me free. This is, what, this is why <laughs> I continued in that journey. This is, this is what helped me uh, get out of the crisis of faith, if you will, was that I realized I didn't have faith. I realized what I believed about God wasn't good. It wasn't true. I believed lies about God that were cunningly secreted into my faith, secreted into, they corrupted my faith. They weren't part of my faith. They corrupted my faith. They turned my faith in God into something else. Mm -hmm. And I still thought I had faith in God, right? And then I encountered his love. And I had encountered his love many times over my life, many times, but it always faded because there was this pure love that I would encounter mm -hmm. and it would always get corrupted over time because I would once again re-encounter my sin and believe things of God that weren't true. But he really isn't afraid of our sin because he had a plan for our sin yeah. all along, and the plan was Jesus. 
right? And it's just faith in him. And that is what set us free, was realizing that the, what we believe about him affects everything. And then all I have to do when I am messing up is return back to the lifeblood, confidence in who he is, and receiving his love for me. Thank you, Lord, that you love me, even in this moment. You know, we can have the confidence to return. You, you ever heard um, a, a preacher say, like, if you, if you sin, like, immediately after your sin, you can actually confess, you know, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, or some, something like that. You, you might have heard that. And that was, like, anathema to me when I first heard it. But I began to realize over time, that's what that is. It's returning back to, you have to have the confidence that he's not standing over you with his arms crossed and his foot tapping and his eyebrow furrowed, <laughs> waiting for you to be sorry. Yeah. You have to have the confidence that that's not true. Yeah. And I hate to put it this way, but your friends who think that's true are operating in religion, like a religious mentality, right? And I don't mean that to be mean. That was me. I was, yeah. I, we were self-righteous because we believed that to be true. And in those moments where you believe you're pleasing to God, are you really pleasing to God or are you self-righteous if you think it's coming from you and your performance, you know? But I'm righteous because he gave me his righteousness. Mm. I'm not righteous because I was good this week, yeah. mm. you know? Was Jesus righteous because he obeyed all the commandments in the law? Or did he obey all the commandments in the law because he was righteous? <laughs> the source of our righteousness is his righteousness. Mm -hmm. And his righteousness is uncorruptible. Yeah. And so is ours. Mm -hmm. So in the moment where we think it's corrupted, where we're tempted to believe something has corrupted our righteousness, we can have faith yeah. that he is good, his righteousness is perfect, his gift to me is sure, and he's not waiting for me to get it together before he's willing to love me or willing to bless me or willing to call me his own. The difference is night and day, isn't it? Mm. And that is what has brought life to us. Um, and we're still on the journey. Like, like Allison said, we're, I still feel like we're just scratching the surface, to be honest. Peeking through. <laughs> I mean, for the longest time, for years, I felt like as I was learning this and I was just filling the pages with notes about, wow, all this stuff I'm learning that I was sharing just a little bit of it with you. There's so much more, but... I always felt like it was like I was peering through a cracked door. Yeah. Could this really be true? It took me years, honestly, to walk through the door, to believe, to say, I'm going to believe this. This is definitely true. And what I've believed my whole entire life <laughs> has been corrupted <laughs> and is not true. You see? Yeah. Because I didn't realize that simple faith is just resting in who he is towards me. And the minute I give that up, because now I got to get up and do works to try to prove something, I've just gotten up from my faith. I've abandoned my faith in him. I've gotten up from my rest. Now I'm getting up to do something because I'm anxious that, oh, he might, maybe he's got some negative thoughts towards me. So anyways, um, is that good? That's great. That's just a piece of our story, but that's, that's the, the core uh, stuff we were learning in the early years. So thanks for letting us share with you guys today. Um, bless you. Thank you. Thank you.